Okay, John, I am very, very sorry. Can you work out why I am very, very sorry? Have you recorded the first half of the podcast on the wrong microphone? Nope. I've recorded it on the right microphone, but it was about two foot from my face. So and so uh, I'm going to put this at the start of the podcast, and this is going to function as the apology. So when you're wondering why Alison is down a well this week, it wasn't my fault, listeners. Please don't at me. Okay, it was my fault. I will do my best in the edit. Hello everyone and welcome to the very 75th episode of Octothorpe, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 19th of January 2023. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And it has been a while since we all sat down and recorded a proper episode. Uh, we have some letters of comment. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy 2023. Happy 2565. It's 2565 here. I'm in the future. I always forget that. But yeah, no, Liz is in the future. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it good in the future? Both in terms of the fact that she's ahead of us in time zone and ahead of us in year number. Uh, have, they, have they cured COVID in the future, Liz? No, but I feel I am less likely to get it in 2565 than I did in 2022. So uh... We had a letter of comment. And it came from Sandra Bond, who said, You've heard of Elf on a Shelf, but are you ready for Mises in Fleeces? Thank you very much, Sandra. 10 out of 10 lock. Made me guffaw. We also heard from someone who is described in the show notes as Chris, quote, the legend, unquote, Garcia. Um, and Chris, the legend, Garcia, wrote in to tell us things sent it from the journey planet email and in fact it's not signed chris garcia it's signed john coxon's soulmate so john can you confirm unambiguously that that is a letter from christopher j garcia uh having read it yes i can say that it is a lock from christopher j garcia but yes he is my soulmate and he does say that he loves graphs or dare he hope charts what's the difference between a graph and a chart liz i don't know john what is the difference between a graph and a chart well, a graph is a thing that you use to show the visualization of data, and a chart is a thing a pirate uses. Arr! To visualize data? Yeah, obviously. He says that he was kind of bummed that Providence didn't get Smofcon. Uh, he really enjoys Providence, especially when they host WrestleMania. Raj on Twitter. Uh, he says, Lock for number 73. Graphs, hurrah. Unfortunately, I can't remember why I wanted graphs now. And then, those graphs are pretty interesting. I hope the fan categories get more love. And then, bean dice, ew. No, the bean dice are great. And then, uh, he's not read any Stephen King, except maybe the odd short story, but he doesn't like horror. Um, So yeah, like Stephen King has two modes. And when I've been listening to people talking about King's most recent book, a lot of them have been kind of distinguishing between King the horror writer and King the fantasy writer. My understanding is that he's very talented in both modes. I have not read any of his fantasy mode. I basically imagine him a bit like Optimus Prime, but for books. I mean, his fantasy is mostly, it's mostly Dark Tower, I guess, which I haven't read. I think his most recent one, yeah. So some others, I guess you might say, were fantasy. But I've primarily read the horror ones. Oh, well, I've read The Stand, which is, you know, kind of post-apocalyptic science fiction in a way. Post-apocalyptic fantasy? I don't know. I mean, there's a plague. Yes. 11.22.63 is science fiction. But no, Fairy Tale is the one I'm thinking of, which came out uh, in 2022 and um, 
is is very much in his fantasy oeuvre rather than his horror oeuvre. Let's continue. This is a boring digression. Uh, Raj and Hugo Girl also sent us a flurry of mentions on Twitter, which Liz will now summarise. Yes, so they were discussing a previous episode of Hugo Girl, which uh, was their one about Kylo Kane. And basically, to summarise it, Raj told the, the Hugo Girl team that if they're coming over to Glasgow for Worldcon, they need to try Iron Brew, which is correct. Yep, true. Um, and this has spiralled into possibly a sort of uh, American versus British food tasting item at uh, Glasgow. So if you want to suggest anything that should be included in this episode, you probably have about a year and a half, realistically, to suggest them. But I do think that if they come to Glasgow, we will be making them have Iron Brew and maybe a Deep Fried Mars Bar. Deep Fried Mars Bar, yep. Haggis. Oh, Deep Fried Mars Bar, yeah. I really like Deep Fried Mars Bar. I also like Deep Fried Mars Bars. Deep Fried Mars Bars are great, is why. Quite hard to get haggis in the United States because of um, food safety law. <laughs> Laurie and Kevin are vegetarian, and vegetarian haggis is easier to get because vegetables are less dangerous. You heard it here first. But vegetarian haggis is also very nice. I mean, basically, it's the spice mix that makes haggis nice, and you can put that in pretty much any uh, edible food. So um, I would concur that, that vegetarian haggis is not a pale imitation of, of meat-based haggis. It is almost identical and doesn't have weird bits of sheep in it. So, you know, that's quite good, isn't it? So Kevin Stanley wrote to us to say, you had difficulty finding information about Smofcon, and I had put all of the Smofcon bid presentations in a video on the on youtube on the swapcon 38 youtube channel and it is fair to say that we didn't go hunting out videos though we might have done if people had linked to them but um we don't really like long videos of verbatim presentations as a mechanism for acquiring information because it is very slow and we would prefer to get nice tight news reports so you know science fiction journalists do your bit what we don't like is when in order to get the information, you have to listen to one or more people blather on instead of just being able to read it nice and concisely off a web page. Oh no, wait. <laughs> we do put links in our show notes, to be fair. Yeah, we do. No, and, and, and I would also say, I think Smofcon, as a convention full of people who run conventions, should in many ways be modelling best convention running behaviour. Uh, and I will leave the rest of that sentence as an exercise for the reader. Have you ever heard the proverb about cobbler's sh- children? No, I, I haven't. Um, it's about cobbler's children and not having shoes. Yeah, and I'd say the flaw here is that, I mean, one thing about YouTube videos is they're not very indexable in searches. So when I went searching for stuff about Smofcon 40 bid sessions, I didn't find the, the videos, basically. No, and it is interesting, like, even if Kevin, or, well, not Kevin, it's not Kevin's job necessarily, but even if someone had sent that to File770 and File770 had literally just linked it saying, here is the video, I would have found it then. Um, it, it, it's basically, it's a problem with linking as much as it is a problem with anything else. Like, if you have information, put it in lots of places, because then you maximise the chance of people finding it. Kevin does note something interesting, which was that the vote was not obviously split, kind of, US versus rest of world. There are clearly US and Canadian can- attendees who voted for Sweden and vice versa. He basically says that getting to Providence from large parts of the US is a little bit of a pain because it's really far in the corner. Uh, and it, I guess it's not a big airport. Uh, so he notes that from where he lives in northern Nevada, it's almost as complicated for him to travel to Providence as to Stockholm. And that is that is also a fair comment. 
do still want to go to both. I've, well, I've been to Stockholm, want to go to Providence. I mean, northern Nevada is one of the remotest places on the planet. You might have well said from from the depths of the Amazonian jungle, it is nearly as far hard to get to Stockholm as it is to, to get to Providence. I've been to Nevada and I've not been to the Amazonian jungle. Uh, so one day I hope to get to the Amazonian jungle, I suppose is the point. And then we had another lock, which is from Dave Mansfield. Dave did some great AI beer recipes, one for each of us and then one that combined elements of each of the three together i won't read them out but i will put a link in the show notes to dave's tweet was a tweet wasn't it no it's a letter oh no shit it was an email basically listeners just imagine a great email what i like is that they look as a non-brewer they look like they are plausible beer recipes but the one for me suggests that you make the beer and then you mix it basically equal parts beer (laughs) sweetened condensed milk and add a bag of thai iced tea mix and listeners, I don't think this is a drink I can recommend. But if anyone wants to try it, I'll bring you a bag of Thai iced tea mix. How about that? Yeah, I assume that, you know, Dave will brew all three of these in time for Glasgow in 2024 and we'll have them on the pod. Kurt Phillips wrote to So Kurt was the only person who mentioned the poem and he didn't mention the poem, but he mentioned the picture and said, why is, why is Greg Thuhu behind bars when John Coxon is on the loose? And I think that's a, a fair question. <laughs> but it's all a matter of perspective i did enjoy reading sandra's poem uh on the podcast i also enjoyed um finding out from alison's reading of the poem the pronunciation of the word jibber that is how you say jibber is it not i think so i am i i was trying to channel stanley holloway and i am not very good at for anyone who was confused by a poem it is a pastiche of the lion and albert the Lion and Albert is the most famous monologue written by Marriott Edgar um, and was made famous by Stanley Holloway. And you can, and we'll put a link to a YouTube video in the, in the show notes so you can see how it's meant to be said. Duncan McGregor also got in touch to say that he has not yet finished his Christmas pastiche due to work, so it might need to wait till next Christmas. And it's always good to have a bank of forthcoming Christmas pastiches. Do write in next year, Duncan. Obviously, feel free to write in before that as well. Either Lillian Edwards or a chatbot doing an extremely good impersonation of Lillian Edwards wrote to say, oh, damn, I meant to do something about that poem business, which is about as perfect a summation of a Lillian Edwards lock as you could hope to get. We've got a couple of sort of follow-outs or follow-ins or whatever you want to call them about our discussion on semi-prozines from a few weeks ago. So firstly, to note that the Locus fundraiser is doing well. I mean, I think we we discussed the the Locus fundraiser, but I think our discussion was less about whether we thought Locus would make its target and more about whether we thought like the Locus model was sustainable. But they they made their target. Uh, It's very difficult for me to tell because uh, Indiegogo likes to convert everything into your local currency, and I cannot do the back conversion in my head. They have made $92,485 out of a requested 91978 Hang on, that seems weird. Oh, I see, but it also says there's a $75,000 goal, so I think they've added some. Uh, they've added a stretch goal if they get there. Yeah, I mean, this is good because it means that there will be locusts for at least another year. 
but they do they have stretch goals which are basically if you give us more money you'll get kind of some some special issues and things which is interesting because it basically means if they hit their stretch goals they have to put out even more issues which presumably they also have to print and so on and pay more contributors for ends up giving them basically even more work it's it's interesting to see how that's going to work one of the things that is clear or one of the things that i know from having followed a lot of board game kickstarters and kickstarters in general but most tabletop kickstarters is that doing lots of stretch goals that require you to do lots of extra work is kind of a trap because quite often what ends up happening is you in no way accurately reflect the cost of doing the extra work in the extra amount you got from the stretch goal so i'm a little bit surprised that they did stretch goals it seems like quite a fundraising 101 thing that you might be like actually let's just get the money we need and then let's worry about stretch goals next time i guess it is a very common thing in for instance the semi-prozine kickstarters though right whenever you have one for you know uncanny or strange rides and something it's quite common for there to be a stretch goal which is we will do this special issue um so maybe it's just kind of conforming to what backers expect maybe yeah could, could well be that is a good point shall i shall i do a segue you could segue because that segues nicely into the next the next topic which is over the kind of holiday period amazon announced they were stopping doing magazine subscriptions through kindle which is potentially a big hit to quite a lot of magazines who have a lot of uh, subscribers through kindle and it was interesting that uh, the editor of uncanny one of the editors of uncanny michael thomas pulled out the numbers of people who were supporting kickstarters for different semi-prozines which all come in at basically about 400 to a thousand backers i think locus are now to about 1000 1165 backers but he's saying that is a relatively small number of people compared to say asimovs and analog which apparently have about ten thousand subscribers through kindle periodical so it could be there is this kind of core of maybe two thousand three thousand people who are supporting a lot of these kickstarters and they're exactly the people that locus kind of were appealing to and have gone for the thing you kind of expect to see on a magazine Kickstarter. But then it's kind of how can you can you expand that to a wider audience? And obviously the Kindle periodical was a way of getting maybe a completely different set of people to subscribe to you on a different platform. And that is now now gone. So it's going to be interesting to see if that has any effect uh, on sort of the finances and the income of these magazines. It sort of reminds me a lot of the discussions that were had around sustainability, not, not from a profit perspective but from a reader perspective when google reader went away uh because a lot of people like oh we should not have relied so heavily on on google to do this because now a lot of our readers have gone away and i think a lot of the magazines are going to be like oh we should not have relied so heavily on amazon to do this because now a lot of our readers are going to go away so my professional advice here would be if you are reliant on a single platform for more than about a third of your income you probably need to have diversification on your forward plan um, fairly quickly because this happens all the time you know bits of platforms that you rely on stop doing the thing you were making money with all of the time so and and it goes double for amazon who because amazon some platforms quite care about their creators but amazon really doesn't give a stuff about you this ties into a lot of the reasons why I make sure there are always non-Amazon links in the show notes uh, every episode because I don't think we are currently, as readers, very reliant on Amazon and um, that seems in the long term to be a fool's errand to me. Yeah, and I, I don't, I'm not going to criticise any magazines for being too reliant on one or the other, just that obviously one kind of leg of the stool 
got kicked out over Christmas and it's going to be interesting to see if there's a way of replacing that. You know, does something else pop up where you can subscribe to magazines through it? Um, you can do it through, say, Weightless Books website. Um, but obviously there's like a a much kind of bigger gap of getting people to go onto Weightless Books and register for that and buy the, the subscriptions and set them to email to you and so on. There is to just like clicking a button on the Amazon website and it pops up on your Kindle. Chengdu, Liz, do you want to do you want to go into Chengdu? Uh, Chengdu, Chengdu Worldcon. We have talked about the Chengdu Worldcon before. We're going to talk about the Chengdu Worldcon again because it is getting increasingly close to the time of the Chengdu Worldcon, and uh, like nothing is happening and no one knows what's going on. So, a brief digression into Wispus Constitution mode. No, 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 Liz Bat. Thank you, John. There aren't many deadlines in the Whispers Constitution, but there are a couple. And one of them is that you have to be a member of the Worldcon by the end of January in order to nominate. So it'll be a, being a member of Chengdu or being a member of Shaikon because they get nomination rights for another year. So basically, it is pretty important that you are able to actually join the convention by January 31st if you'd like to be able to nominate. And it seems like you can now join Chengdu. Although I haven't tested it because I have a full membership by voting at Discon. And I think John and Alison do as well. So I'm not sure if any of us have actually tested this. But it it does appear that Chengdu have had an awful time trying to set up credit card payments. Essentially because like the the credit card systems and systems used in China are not well integrated with the systems used in the rest of the world. And I would assume setting up a bank account in China to take credit card payments from overseas is not a uh, a trivial job. But the outcome of this is if you would like to nominate in the Hugos and you do not currently have a supporting membership, you have to try and join and then I think do a direct bank transfer to someone and send the receipt to them and they will check over and then give you a membership, which probably works. But I don't know like where the bank is that you have to transfer money to. I don't know where there are extra costs involved with this. Basically, listeners, if any of you have tried it, let us know because I'd be interested to know how it works. But this is one of the things where it is currently like, I guess it's fulfilling kind of the requirements of the constitution, which is you can allow people to join. It doesn't say you actually have to allow people to join easily or without a large international wire transfer markup or anything like that. And so it's going to be interesting to see if anyone, you know, does try and change the constitution to make it so that, you know, you not only have to allow people to join, but allow people to join relatively easily. Now, the counterpoint to that might be, I have no idea how easy it's been for anyone in China to become a supporting member of Worldcons for like the past 15 years. Possibly also extremely difficult, but it it doesn't seem ideal that this is your solution when you're getting very close to a deadline. And there's just like, there's other stuff they hadn't done. Like, I don't think I've actually had any emails from the Chengdu Worldcon, even though I am a member. We haven't got any progress reports. There is another petition against their guest of honour, Sergei Lukyanenko which we'll link to in the show notes. Confirmed rotter, Sergei Lukyanenko. I feel like we should always introduce him with confirmed rotter in the start of his name because he's a confirmed rotter, listeners. But yeah, so they, they are they are tweeting. And I mean, I can log into their website and, and see some things and click on them. And uh, they are tweeting quite a bit, but not thing particularly relevant to, say, joining the Worldcon. It'd just be nice to see a little bit more activity. Now, it has been, I'm sure, extremely hard to deal with the COVID situation. Um, and I'm aware that now is also basically a holiday 
So I don't know if we're going to hear from any anything from them soon, but it would be nice to hear a little bit more from them kind of outside the times when they absolutely have to say something like at the, you know, Smothcon vanishing position and so on. Mm. And this is something that slightly worries me because I am, although I was not a huge fan of, of China's bid specifically, I am in general a huge fan of countries bidding to host world cons that are not the usual suspects. But I do worry that part of the problem with having a convention do a bad job of that when they do it, as Chengdu currently are, is that it sours the pot for sort of future people trying to do the same thing. Like every international world con that is a complete shower hurts the chance that we'll get more international world cons in the future. And I don't like it when that happens. And it's not fair that it happens, but it is true, I think. But I will say, like, given that it is a Chinese holiday at the moment, or coming up very soon with Chinese New Year, they did need to make sure they had all their ducks in a row before that happened. And they very clearly did not make sure they had their ducks in a row, uh, which is a pain in the butt. Yeah, because nothing is going to happen during Chinese New Year at all. So, which, in case anyone doesn't know, is quite a long holiday, a couple of weeks. And it's normally a couple of weeks, but a bit of travel. So it takes people a bit of a while to get back into the swing of things afterwards as well, typically. So when, as I haven't checked, I'm just talking out of my hat here, but I do wonder if when they say, oh, people have to make a direct payment to a bank account, that means a direct payment to a US bank account, thereby disenfranchising everyone who is not in the US or China. But I don't know. Somebody, People who do know, write in. Yeah, I mean, it's not insurmountable to make a direct bank transfer to a US account from the UK. It's just bloody expensive. Yeah, I mean, there are websites that will allow you to do it for minimal cost and so on, but it is like an, it's just an extra hoop to jump through. I mean, I will say that I pay for a lot of things in Thailand by direct bank transfer, like a lot more than I ever used to in the UK, because it's really easy to do. So they may have been thinking, well, we do direct bank transfers to each other a lot. Let's just set one up so people can do a direct bank transfer to the other person. I can't test it out because I can't kind of get in and do it without buying a membership, basically, which I do not want to do because I've already got one. Listeners, be our guinea pigs. <laughs> yeah. It's also tricky because all of the things we just said assume that they are a group of Chinese people who are like, well, maybe it works fine for us if we do it like that. So maybe it will work fine for everyone else. But like, I have a question, which is Ben Yellow is the co-chair and there are other non-Chinese fans involved with this Worldcon. And my question to those fans is, what are you doing? They're trying to talk to Chinese people. I mean, it's difficult from the outside. It might be that they're all doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing and it's all on the Chinese fans who are involved being horrible at communicating. That means that they're not. And I mean, I don't even care if it is a formal PR1, to be honest. You could just put a blog post up titled PR1, but it needs to include things like when we expect to do stuff like let you be able to buy a membership or open hotel bookings or even, you know, put an informational page up about what you might need to do to get a visa, if that's even going to be possible, that kind of thing. Because this is a time frame when if people were going to go, they would be thinking about planning their trips. And possibly they are not so bothered about getting anyone from overseas. But if you don't get anyone from overseas, then I don't really see the point in having it be a world con rather than just a Chinese science fiction convention, which would probably be a lot easier to administer for them. And you wouldn't have to muck about with all this constitutional stuff. It's a mess. Yarp. But there's still time to fix things. So it's not like an irredeemable mess yet. It's just a mess where we're saying, yeah, it's probably time that you started doing a few of these things. And hopefully they will bear that in mind. You know, when they're listening to us, fountains of all vanished knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yup. 
but yeah uh it just it it, it frustrates me uh greatly because i would quite like i would like things to be different i'd like it to be a really good Worldcon, and then like there might be more in non-traditional Worldcon places but it's probably not going to be so uh. nope Though bear in mind that China at the moment can get the Wilcon any time it wants. So, you know, it just might not want it. But I think you are wrong in so far as if this is a huge and shambolic mess, the Wolfsburg Constitution will be modified to make sure that it is harder for China to win in the way it did last time. And do you have any suggestions for that modification, John? Segue, segue. <laughs> well, I mean, firstly, I think there will be modifications, stuff like you have to have your own email address in your own address. But the other thing I did wonder was whether it was worth or whether anyone would propose an amendment to the Wolfsburg Constitution. So there is 4.6.1, and I'm taking advantage of the Liz Bat's work here because I believe Liz posted this in a, a chat I was having elsewhere, and I copied and pasted it into the show notes. So this is Liz's research. So 4.6.1 basically says that any convention that wants to be eligible for site selection has to do three things. They have to file documents that say that they are intending to bid they have to have evidence of an agreement with the facilities um, such as a conditional contract and they have to have rules under which their committee will operate including stuff like replacing officers and so forth and i wondered whether it'd be possible to introduce a fourth thing where you have to be able to take card payments to let people join you have to show that you can do that because i don't think it's good as liz said earlier i don't think it's good for the Worldcon if Worldcons who are not in traditionally Worldcon hosting countries end up not being able to have anyone from the wider Worldcon community attend because that just seems like it's siloing in a different way which I don't think is all that healthy but yeah there are arguments for and against probably. There are lots of places where credit card use is very is quite uncommon including quite a lot of places that you might have thought that credit card use was relatively common and some places in which you might think a welcome might happen. I'd be concerned that we don't go for a solution that has the effect of disenfranchising some countries where credit card use is uncommon. I think some of the Eastern European countries, I, mean, I don't know, I'm probably talking bollocks again. But I think, I think we've got to have a balance here, which is I want to make it so that people can join easily but I also don't want to put the barriers up for potential bids so high that they can't meet them if there might be an alternative. I'm thinking of, say, the proposed Ugandan bid, who might find it difficult to get, you know, be able to take credit card payments from people from the US, but they may be able to have an alternative like possibly take them through PayPal or take, you know, bank transfers and have a local agent or something similar. And the reason is also that, you know, it's possible that some of these places like China will have to bid several times. And I don't want them kind of out of the running of being able to kind of dip their toes in the water and bid if they have to also be able to demonstrate that their kind of credit card infrastructure is up and running before they start. So so maybe if you said a, a mechanism to take payments worldwide. Well, from that perspective, China's got one. You can wire transfer to the States. So that's fine. And they've already met that. But not at the point where they bid. And this is suggesting we have a little extra hoop at the bidding stage at the paper filing stage which has traditionally been kept very minimal where possible but if the reason we want to make that um change is because it's very difficult to join china making it a change that would not make it any easier to join china seems daft to me might as well just not change it 
because you argued earlier in this very episode that wire transfers to a US bank account were also exclusionary for large numbers of the world's population. I think I may just be saying that the convention has to absorb the transfer costs. So they need to bundle in transfer costs for global for global payments into their convention design and budgeting. No, because like, I don't know much about the finances of like conventions in less well-off countries, but I imagine that they need lower budgets and asking them to spend large amounts of their budget that US Worldcons don't have to spend on that seems very unfair from an exclusion perspective. The thing is, I can't think of a way of doing this that isn't massively disenfranchising. And so I think you have to ask a question, is this a big enough problem that it's worth the risk that it is disenfranchising? Which it may or may not be, I don't know. And then you have to ask the question, like, how do we do this in the easiest possible way that disenfranchises the fewest people? And I think the more you tie yourself into knots trying to avoid disenfranchising people, my worry is the more you risk doing it. I'd be quite happy if Chengdu had just said to Tricon, can you keep your credit card uh, payments open for a little bit and take some memberships for us, please? Or even to Glasgow. I don't know. I don't see a reason why Tri- like Chengdu couldn't say to Glasgow, do you mind taking memberships for us and give us the money? Is there a reason why not? I think getting the money into China might be the issue, but I don't know. But I don't, th- I don't see how that's not a problem with wire transferring to an agent in the US. We don't know if it's a wire transfer to agent in the US. I'll just say we were speculating. It might be that actually when you do the wire transfer on the site, you wire transfer to a Chinese bank account. So we are speculating a bit there. Oh, I see what you mean. I did read, I'm sure I read somewhere that it was an agent in the US, but I can't find a source for it. So um, do write in if you know, listeners. But also, but also, I think the thing is, I don't know if I think that doing memberships the way Chengdu are doing it is not exclusionary. Yeah, that they're planning to open a corporation in Wyoming. So I think that answers quite a lot of those questions. And they should have done that in 2021. <laughs> and it is tricky because I don't know how you square the circle, as Liz says, of making it difficult for bids to bid. But I was going on a notion of most bids wanting to be able to take pre-support. I appreciate that wasn't true for China because they don't need the money. I'd be interested to know what listeners think. Write in. Let me know if I'm being hugely unreasonable. Let me know if I'm not. Let me know if, you know, let me know what you reckon. I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about Chengdu a few more times before the summer. But one thing that has emerged is that I think they were expecting almost of the entire cost of the convention to be picked up by sponsorship deals. And I don't think they've actually got those sponsorship deals yet. So I am, I am watching fascinatedly to see what happens there. So I think that's all we have to say about Chengdu. Is that all we have to say about Chengdu? For this week. Well, we said we said quite a lot. So We we no, I mean that is true. We said quite a lot and basically did not come to any uh, strong conclusions because I think we are we are balancing the two things of, you know, it should be easy for people to join your convention in a foreign country and we shouldn't make you jump through a lot of very expensive hoops. Yeah. It is a. It is genuinely difficult. I, I want there to be a solution. I have no idea what that solution is. So, listeners, right in. Yes. Liz is going to do the Run Along Womble TBR challenge and will mention it here for accountability. Liz? <laughs> Thank you, John, for reading out what I put in the show notes. <laughs> Basically, the Run Along Womble blog has a challenge to tackle your, you know, to be red pile in 2023, which is basically uh, a different suggestion 
for every month in 2023 of how you might read some of those books that you always buy and then never get around to reading. And I have quite a few of those, so I thought I might give it a go. So my January, my January project is to read the most recent book on my TBR pile, um, which I will get around to eventually, but it's a paper book, so it's taking me a bit longer than usual. And then for every month, there's like a stretch goal, and the stretch goal is to read the oldest book. Um, and the other thing I quite like is February, uh, it suggests that you read 28 short stories, which would work quite well for preparing for Hugo nominations, um, assuming the Hugo nominations actually happen and so on. And so I thought I might try following it. And I thought if I mention it here, then someone might remind me at, you know, intervals throughout the year uh, that I plan to do this and see if I've actually done any of it. So you heard it here first, listeners. No, it's a good it's a good idea. I did on the subject of the stretch goal. I did see someone in a chat i'm in um say it's bold of them to assume that i know what the oldest book on my tbr pile is and obviously the solution there is to clear your current tbr pile before starting the challenge so you do have good data doesn't really matter does it i mean it's in the spirit of things like if i read oh the third oldest book on my tbr pile who cares some people would i i do not but actually what i'm doing is i'm reading the the book i can find my the earliest book in my Kindle purchasing history that I haven't read, which I think is from 2017. So yeah, might read that. I'm, I'm going to, I'm still decluttering. And, and one of the things I am decluttering is almost all the books we own on paper that are, that just have text in them, that we are keeping a few, but very, very few. But I am going to offer an alternative stretch goal, which is to look at your oldest TBR book conclude you're never going to read it and delete it and then continue with this process until you get to one that you actually fancy reading and um, then read that one um, because I think there's a whole thing about the way in which having a very large number of books you haven't read particularly paper ones weighs your mind down there are plenty of new books to read guys only keep the old books if you really still want to read them don't fall foul of the sunk cost fallacy why why would I delete a book that I've already bought I have this with steam I have so many Steam games that I've got in bundles that I'm never, ever going to play. I wish there was a good way of just being like, I don't want this anymore. Get rid of it. But every time I'm like, because I can't sell it for like, if I could sell it for a penny, mentally I'd be like, brilliant, that's good. But just deleting it feels wrong. Like, no, I own this. Deleting it would be wasteful. And so there is a real like tension there. But it stresses me out that I've got all these games in Steam. I mean, also, listeners, uh, I did my um, 2022 Steam end of year stats and Steam says I played one game and that game was Tabletop Simulator. So I think it's time to conclude that maybe I just don't play games on PC anymore. That phase of my life has passed. Yeah, so I kind of get both uh, points. I would like to say two further things. Um, one is that obviously I don't actually own my books because they're on my Kindle. So technically Amazon owns them and could delete them at any time. <laughs> And the other thing says, when I said 2017, I didn't mean 2017 at all. I meant 2011. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that is that is a delightful little coda. I love it. For those who are following along at home, I was just finishing my undergraduate degree in 2011. I expect, Liz, you were finishing your PhD? Yeah, I just finished it. So of course, I didn't read anything during my undergraduate degree or my PhD. And then I started reading it. I think I found that my undergraduate and PhD uh, did do a number for my leisure reading as well. My youngest child had just started secondary school. And all you think people who think that a PhD does a number on your reading habits, you should try having children. Oh, my God. So, no, it sounds like a good ploy, Liz. I'm kind of trying to do something similar with board games, not as a result of this challenge, but 
the board game app I use to log my board game plays has so it has like a challenges expansion you can buy in app uh, and you set yourself challenges and they've recently announced a new type of challenge which is you can set a challenge to bring your cost per play of each of your board games down to five pounds and so I have set that up basically so if you spent 60 quid on a board game you would need to play it 12 times in order for each play to have cost five pounds and I set myself the target of doing this by 1st January 2025 and also I'm not going to worry if I don't like it's basically just for data I'm not actually pushing to try and do it but it reliably informs me I need to play uh, 287 more games in 717 days Uh, so that's good it's got a little graph hurrah John, if you have a game and, you know, it costs you, say, £50 and you've played it twice and then you sell it on eBay for £50, do you get £10 in credit? No. But I will say, if I buy a game, play it once and hate it and then sell it, I delete it from the stats completely. So, like, you know, I'm making out like a bandit. Don't worry, Liz. Obviously, there's a solution here, which is to never spend more than a fiver on a tabletop board game. But I did notice that board game stats has spaces for how much you paid for a board game which i'm trying to fill in and it doesn't really have a note of how much you realize when you get shot of it so i am trying to buy most games either cheaply or second hand and and so that should reduce the cost per play my new year's resolution is to get rid of half of my possessions pretty much in 2023 but we started early we started in november yeah (laughs) that's a lot physical possessions so i will end up with a very large number of books on Kobo, and I think that just means that Rakuten owns them all. I don't think it's any better, though I have a kind of bit of a calibre thing going on, so I do have copies of them all that Rakuten does not own. <laughs> Should we do picks? Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, I can go down the pub. Who, who wants to start? I want to start. So, like last year, I put a note on my Facebook page. This is a public post, so we'll link to it in the show notes, saying, tell us one good novel written in 2022. And lots of people did, and about most of them were written in 2022. I'm going to do another post, which will be out by the time you get this, saying, recommend me one thing that's not a novel that was new in 2022 that you enjoyed. And so hopefully that will get me a knot of recommendations in things that are not novels. In the novels, several people said, ah, you should read Cold Water by Dave Hutchinson. And I said, I cannot do that because I have not read the first four books in the series. And they said, oh, no, you are so wrong about that. So I picked up the first book in his Fractured Europe series, which is Europe in Autumn. And I read it and I liked it very much indeed. And I'll talk a little bit about why I liked it, um, which is that it is a near future spy thriller. Um, And I had just read one of these that I didn't like very much at all. So it was quite nice reading one that I liked ever such a lot. And the reason is that the balkanisation of Europe, it is set in a Europe which has um, fallen into lots of little bits as a result of Brexit and, not Brexit, but a pandemic and, and the independence of Scotland and all of that sort of stuff. And Hutchison seems to be seems to have been quite prescient because he wrote all of this before all of the shenanigans that have happened over the last few years. But the book derives a lot of its power and interest from the way in which these different little bits of Europe are different and the way in which increasing borders everywhere makes life difficult for everybody. And it's all very good and very entertaining. But you kind of go, well, as a spy thriller, this is strange because everything here is a bit more weird and off kilter than you would expect if it was 
a spy thriller and and about 80% through of the way through the novel, you discover that something entirely different is also going on. So it, it kind of takes a very dramatic turn to the left. And I absolutely loved it. Um, thought it was amazing. And met Dave for the first time on Wednesday and said, ah, oh, your book, it's amazing. Oh, gosh, it's amazing. I've no, I've met a lot of authors. So I know that if you meet authors and tell them their books are amazing, they never mind. And it's true, he didn't. So that was very nice. If you're listening, Dave, love your book. I also have Europe in Autumn on my To Be Read pile. It's one of my older books on my To Be Read pile, so maybe I should take Liz's Aha. Wombling Challenge and use it to uh, read that, although probably not before Easter, because I have reading to do before Easter. Really liked it. Very much looking forward to the rest, although it's a series, so traditionally I read the second and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's okay, but not as nice as the first, and then I read the third and go, oh, no, I'm done with this series now. So I don't know because I've only read the first. But the first one's amazing. If you haven't read it, you definitely should. Um, It's very timely because it was published in 2015. There's a thing in the TBR challenge about finishing a series that you previously started. Did you know, Alison? Oh, I should mention accountability. Because I said that on this podcast a year ago, I was going to watch all of the Expanse television show in 2022. And we are nearly all the way through season two. So that went well. Better than the average New Year's resolution. (laughs) Very well done. Very well done. So only four and a half seasons left to go. Uh, I will put a link to, well, assuming Alison is comfortable with me doing this, I will put a link to Alison's year in review exhortation uh, in the show notes. And I will also put a link to the Strange Horizons roundup of the year, which I read and got some good recommendations out of as well. Liz, do you want to go next or do you want me to go next? I can go next if you like. Hey, do it. I've picked a book which, I don't know, it's maybe not my favourite book I read over the holidays, but I thought it was quite interesting and might be of interest to listeners. It's a book called A Game of Birds and Wolves by Simon Parkin, who I think has previously written quite a lot of stuff about video games. But this is actually about, um, it's about the battle for the Atlantic during World War II, which was a battle basically between the German U-boats and the merchant shipping that was trying to desperately feed Britain during the Second World War. And the bit I was completely unaware of is that there was essentially a unit who uh, came up with essentially a big board game that they used to plot out strategies to, you know, beat the U-boat squadrons. And so that was interesting. And it's got a bit about like the history of, you know, war gaming. And it's not the first time that war games have been used to train people in wartime. But this appeared to, you know, be pretty successful, came up with several strategies that were used to even the odds between these merchant convoys and the U-boats. And the other interesting thing is that a lot of the participants in this were the Wrens, so the the women's Royal Naval personnel. And because a lot of them were involved essentially in setting up the game and in, in managing it and also ending up becoming very, very skilled at it to the point where you had these Wrens playing as as submariners against like the captains of royal naval ships and 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 beating them essentially because they've become so good at kind of the rules of this game and that is very interesting unfortunately it's a little bit underplayed because it's quite clear that basically not a lot of, lot of them wrote memoirs or things like that and certainly not to the same degree that kind of high up male royal naval personnel were and so there's some sort of tantalizing things where we maybe don't actually know quite enough about what their thoughts were at this time but it, it sort of blends kind of a high level overview of the battle for the atlantic the Wren organization and a few of the specific ones who took part in this and some of the also officers who were doing it because the, the leading officer was someone who couldn't be on active service due to 
uh, illness and disability, but was able to kind of take this part of training thousands of ship captains to, to try and defeat the U-boat tactics. So it's it's both great and frustrating in that obviously there's a lack of some of the primary sources you'd really want to be in there. And maybe it could go into a bit more detail in places. I kind of wanted more detail on what the Wrens were always doing like in, in the military. And you'd get quite a bit more about what was documented about, say, when they fell in love with, with Royal Naval Sailors and married them, because I think we've got a bit more documentation on that. But it was a pretty satisfying read. And certainly I had no idea that there was this board game that was being used to game out tactics against submarines that seem to work pretty well so recommended on the topic of board games yeah so there was there's been like board gaming in war and board gaming in defense is really interesting there's like um been a bunch of stuff on it uh there's like a few fbi board games as well that are used to train is it fbi or cia but one of the one of the um, federal u.s agencies still uses them to this day but it's fascinating well, that is, that is mentioned in the book, actually, briefly, he goes to, he's allowed to sit in on one of the kind of wargaming exercises that they do at, at a, a military base and not give any details, but kind of give like a kind of general overview of it. My my experience of playing games that are used for scenario planning for all sorts, it's not just war, actually, um, games turn out in all sorts of planning exercises. I don't think that's in any way secret is that they're not fun like real games are. It's a bit like fitness games or things like that. As soon as you apply actual purpose to the games, they're way less fun than the games we like to play for fun. I had I had to think about picks because we haven't recorded for a little while and I have consumed media, like I've consumed more than one media since last time we got together. And so I had to consider which one to pick. Obviously, I did consider picking the cricket book. I can't remember if I've mentioned the cricket book on the podcast. I'm not picking this, obviously. But if I were to pick it, uh, I'd be picking uh, Hitting Against the Spin, which is basically quite good because it uses data and it has parameter spaces in it. And if you have any interest in data or sport at all, I would recommend it. Even if if you're not specifically interested in cricket, um, I think it has enough to say about data in sport is good. Claire's going to lend it to me. Um, but in fact, I'm going to pick something SFNL. I'm going to pick the Moonday Letters by Emmy Itaranta, which was given to me by um, Nick Clark and Neil Harrison for my birthday. Thank you very much, peeps. And is really good. 10 out of 10 book. You can tell us more? Yeah, it's about a woman whose spouse is on a work trip. And it's about how that goes. And it's told in the form of her journal over the course of some time. I, I'm not quite sure exactly how much time, but kind of certainly several months. And um, the setting is effectively... Uh, the way I put it to Neil, and Neil didn't think I was being uh, horrendously daft, was it's a bit like a magical realism version of The Expanse. So like it's it's kind of a solar system where earth isn't doing so well and mars and other colonies are kind of overtaking it and um the character we follow it it is is from earth originally and we follow her kind of throughout the solar system as it were uh and it's really interesting it's really good i liked it a lot neil and abigail both raved about it um and i've seen other people raving about it too and that was the old thought podcast and it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me 
So basically what we need to do is we need to develop a convention board game. Well, it's if I ran the Zoocon, which... Which we've recommended to you multiple times in the past, but it's quite dated now. Which I have previously thought, actually, well, there's a new edition, which I've never played. It's still quite dated. Yeah, but I wondered if it was worth getting the updated edition and making you and John be convention committees for a podcast one day. How do I play if I run the Zoocom? Because when you have previously talked about it, I have thought it was like, oh, there is this thing. I didn't think it was a recommendation of you should go and find it and play it. It's a board game. It's not a recommendation of that. And it's not really a board game. It's like a like a scenario. I am on the board game geek listing. I'd, I've been on the board game geek listing. And in files, it says no files found. And in overview, it says propose official link. So it is now on my, it's on my want to play. <laughs> and I want to play it. Make it happen. Well, you can get it from the Nest for Press website. But I'm not sure if you can. I think you can get the PDF. Ooh. Let me check. You probably want it on a PDF. I'm, I'm up for a PDF. There was also a British version of this. If you Have you ever played Mystic Wood? No. Okay, so Mystic Wood's a classic board game, and there is a convention version of that called Mystic Con, which is kind of like if I ran the Zoocon, but for Britain, and also very old. Oh, an old Avalon Hill game. Yeah, I mean, the, the first edition of If I Ran the Zoocon is 1986, which... I'm sure not much has changed in board con running since 1986. I only played it once at a one of the pre-world con con runner things and it was hilarious because we spent a lot more of our money and people points on booze and we're like does this stuff we need a sweet really nah <laughs> and then you like it basically doesn't really work i think for it did it was it was both quite dated and quite american so so fun fact i'm now on the nesper press website because like having now realized i can play this i do unironically want to but there's no search function, which I feel like if you're running a website that sells things, you should let people search for them. But I can purchase if I ran the Zoocon for $15 in the fourth edition, and it is 146 pages. Well, I assume... What? There used to be a t-shirt produced by Offworld Designs. I want the t-shirt. If anyone's got that t-shirt, my address is... No, um... <laughs> Oh, cartoons by Steve Styles. I think we should see if anyone has, like, if anyone honestly does have a copy of the fourth edition. I mean, I'd love it if there was a PDF version, but I don't think there is. Like, if someone did have it, I presume it's still the same as the first edition. It's sort of like a team game, and then you have, like, a games master reading out a scenario of a thing that's happened at the convention, and you have to decide how you're going to deal with it. And you have finite amounts of people points and money points and something else points. And if we could find one, I would play it with you guys as a podcast. I think it could be quite funny, but also we might just be mean about it because it's very dated at this point. Um, If anyone has a copy of um, Mystic Con, the British one, and would like to lend it to us, that would also be quite funny, I think. Bring it to a fan fund auction and I will spend an unwise amount of money on it. Yeah, if somebody could bring a copy of um, Zoocon to a fan fund auction, John will probably bid on that too, I should think. Now that I know that it's available from Nesper Press for $15, like, that does put somewhat of a, um upper limit on what I might be willing to pay. <laughs> it does say it's got some kind of additional scenarios added in the, uh, ooh, in the 2015 update. Um, sorry, I just found a website which is claiming ooh. it will sell me the PDF for $5. Now ooh. I have to see if they're actually... Linky, linky. Well, look at the page. Oh, So I guess this is Nesper have put it on a print-on-demand site. Oh, no, that looks legit. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we probably do want this as an ebook, right? I mean, we're all about to buy it, I assume. <laughs> I assume all three of us are currently creating an account on thebookpatch.com. And, you know, they say that just listening to people doing things in silence is not podcasting gold. But I think in this case, it might be. I've tried to buy it on PayPal, and PayPal has said that it's going to review my thing for security reasons. Why is that? I know why that is. It's because they got three purchases for the same item from two different countries all at the same time. No, I haven't bought it, so... Uh... Oh, okay, fine. Liz! Letting the side down. What? I'm going to do it later. Stop encouraging me to multitask while on the podcast, Tom. Yeah. Sometimes I ask you a question, you sort of have zoned out, and I'm like, John is reading something right now. So stop encouraging me to do that. eBay, who clearly knows what I like, has just sent me a link to a palette of 200 random board games. Oh, board game. I know we were talking earlier about cost per play and never spending more than a certain amount per board game, but I do think there is some merit in uh, selecting the board games you want to play. I think this is probably if you were like if you like opening that board game pub that I'm not going to open in 2023, I would actually go for something like that as as a way to have a lot of games. When you say it's a palette of 200 random board games, are you sure they're 200 different board games? They might be 200 copies of Carcassonne. In which case, you've got a very boring pub. Palette job loved at over 200 assorted board games. Games will differ to those in the photo, but will be similar. Games are all unchecked. Assorted is doing a lot of work there for 200 pounds and and they look mostly like 200 pounds for 200 board games yeah that's a pound of board game bit steep (laughs) the theme music for this episode was fanfare for space by kevin mcleod and competech.com used under a creative commons attribution 4.0 license this podcast will end at the beep beep